Hello ladies and gentlemen, craft spirit enthusiasts, and those interested in the intoxicating world of craft distilleries, cideries, meaderies, wineries, and the occasional foray into breweries. It's Rich Shane and welcome to Fermented Adventure, the podcast, where we bring you the fascinating people that are making the mash, fermenting, distilling, bottling, pouring, and delivering to you some of the finest libations in the world. Before we get started, here are a few housekeeping items. Thank you for bringing the podcast into wherever you are and whatever you're doing. We truly are grateful that you've chosen to listen and make us part of your day. It would mean the world to us if you left a five-star review. This helps us climb in the rankings and it makes it easier for others to find us. Don't hesitate to leave us your comments as well. If the podcast didn't meet your expectations, tell us why. We're always striving to improve. You can find us at fermentedadventure.com. We are on Instagram and Facebook as Fermented Adventure. Email us at fermentedadventure at gmail.com. All right, FA Nation, let's meet our guests. We are here at Palmer Distilling. I am joined by Walter Palmer. Walter, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. It's great to finally have you. I, I, I recall walking up Main Street in Maniunk and seeing a little sign yep. out on the street that says, Free gin tastings right. this way mm-hmm. and come on up the hill. So yep. it's it's exciting to finally get a chance to sit down and, and, and speak with you. So take us back to when all this was conceived, when you got the idea to start mm-hmm. a distillery and, and through the process of doing that. The distillery started uh, predominantly out of uh, the end of my previous career. I lost my job in 2012. Um most people, I figured out or I found out that most people didn't want to pay me what I was making before after I searched for a new job. Uh, 27 years on a resume actually had not much value. Uh, I'm over 50 and um, my son was just about through college. My house was almost paid off. And uh, we decided as I looked for a job, I couldn't find a new job that I felt comfortable with that was making paying me the same amount of money that I was making before or comparable. Um, so we decided uh, to create a plan B, and this really was a plan B. Kind of as a lark, not really very serious lark, but um, as you're looking for a job, you start to, you know, I made bread, I, made, I always had made beer, my father and I, we had always made wine. Um, but I decided that I would buy a still and start to distill things because I was, I was looking for jobs. That's what I decided to do. I had already finished cleaning up my garden and planted a very nice vegetable garden and worked on my yard. But I decided I needed something, another outlet. So we decided to uh, buy a still and start to distill things. And as I did that, my friends, most of them thought I was a little bit crazy, but a lot of them actually liked what I was making. What were some of the first things you were distilling? I mostly made whiskeys. They were mostly corn-based whiskeys. Um, they were the easiest thing to, to distill. Um, you can ferment in your kitchen. You can cook on your kitchen stove. And uh, we have a little barn out back, and I would I bought a still, and I started to distill in the barn. And the more I got into it, the more I recognized that the laws had changed and that maybe I should expert or, or look into it a little further. So I took some classes at Cornell and I met other people that were kind of in the same boat I was, kind of trying something new. And what year was this? What, what time uh, frame 2012, was this? 2012. 2012, 2013, actually. So you're really still on the cusp mm-hmm. of a lot of the beginnings of the craft distillery yes. industry where yeah. things are. I recognize that there was a change in kind of the business environment of distilled spirits, kind of following on the backs of, you know, um, craft brewing and vineyards, um, particularly in Pennsylvania, had started to grow. So 
I actually went back. I have a fine art degree and I spent 27 years uh, not in the fine arts. On a very like kind of sad and depressed day, I was down visiting my son in school and I ran into an old professor of mine. And, you know, I said, you know, I can't find a job. I don't know what I'm going to do. And I was really not in a very good place. And my old professor said to me, you went to school to be creative. Why don't you go back and be creative? Okay. And so I took, I looked at the distilling processes a little, a little bit more seriously. And we really created a plan B. And I went to school. I took some classes. We met some other people. Where and, did you go to school uh, for we, that? We went up to Cornell. So uh, that was at Cornell. Yeah, as well. okay. up at Cornell. We at um, their uh, Seneca Lake, I think, uh, Geneva campus, which is an agricultural campus okay. for Cornell University. And we met a lot of people that were kind of in the same boat. And we started to visit some of these other distilleries. And my wife and I, we'd get back in the car and we would always say, well, if they could do it, we could do this. Right. We could do that. And it looks like a very kind of, not a luxurious lifestyle, but a very rewarding lifestyle. So we decided that we would explore it a little bit more. And we, as I continued to look for a job, you know, we distilled more and more things. And we gre- we kind of generated a pool of what I would consider about 10 friends that really were... Um, constructive had constructive criticism with what we made so it just became this kind of process that kind of evolved one one february i'd interviewed i'd been through like three or four interviews with the job that i was convinced that i was going to have and i didn't get it and i just decided that i have to take control of my own destiny i have to control um the way forward relying on other people to you know kind of fulfill the second part of my career was just not really uh, happening. So what's the time frame from that point where that, that job ends and you're still working on the idea of distilling and... Uh... this? St- well, we started this company in 2014. It was actually okay. February of 2014 where we decided to form the Palmer Distilling Company. Um, it took us until Memorial Day of 2015 to actually open the door, put that little sign out that you saw down the bottom of the street, out on the side, on the street, and sell something. Um, So it took us almost a year to get from the thought of actually starting a distillery to actually opening up a distillery. Uh, That included looking for a location, trying to figure out what to make, trying to figure out what type of equipment to buy, uh, trying to figure out how to distribute it, trying to figure out how we were actually going to exist. So as a sole proprietorship, mm-hmm. which is really what you are at this point, mm-hmm. what take us through some of those items, you know, as far as we have the still in the background. How did you go about choosing your still right. and, and, and the process for that? Um, I think it, it's interesting because most of the times what we did uh, in the beginning, I, I had this. My thought was, you know, I had this romantic vision that I was going to, you know, buy a still and, you know, get barrels and make whiskey and, you know, sit in cornfields and smoke cigars and drink bourbon and be that kind of guy. Because that's actually what I like to do. Okay. And I was your classic gin in the summer, bourbon in the winter kind of guy. You know, in looking at the, you know, the kind of mechanics of actually how to do that, uh, it's very cost prohibitive. Or I shouldn't say it's cost prohibitive. It's very expensive. Okay. 
And so one of the core things that I thought that I wanted to do is I wanted to decide, I, I needed to decide whether or not I was going to actually go out and raise money. Because looking at all the distilleries, there were either people that did it on their own or there were people that actually put together investment pools and decided to kind of raise several million dollars and put a business group together and go down that path. Given my last experience with working for other people, I did feel very confident that I had a long history of political fundraising and kind of selling an idea. I felt very confident that I could raise money and do that. But then I would be kind of beholden to those people and I'd be working for those people. And I decided that... You really have gotten to the point here where this is your path... Right. I decided I didn't want to work for, I didn't want to, I didn't want to work for other people. I wanted it to be my vision. I wanted it to be, you know, my wife and I, we felt very, that we had clarity in what we wanted to do and that we felt that we had the right aesthetic to move forward. So we, we decided that, um, it was a difficult decision, but we decided that we were in a financial position where we were just going to go use our own money. We were going to bootstrap this from the, from the ground up. And we were going to start as elegantly simple as we possibly could and not, you know, put $4 million worth of equipment in a, in a building and not spend $3 million on a building and, you know, ad campaigns and all that kind of stuff. We were going to let our product speak for ourselves and we were going to do the speaking. We were going to be authentic. And so we looked for a product. We looked for, um, you know, what we could actually make. And, and how we started was, which actually was the still that we bought, which um, we could either buy a half a million dollar still, about 150 liters German still, which is very spectacular looking, lots of stainless steel, lots of copper. They're very technically driven. It makes things very, very precise. Or we could actually look historically to what distillation really was, which was it's a copper pot with a lid and a flame. Like that's literally what it is. For thousands of years, that's what distillation has been. And so we thought that we could actually afford that as opposed to raising the money to try to, you know, put together a half a million dollars worth of a still in a, in a room. So we looked at an ancient process and therefore we looked at ancient recipes and ancient thoughts of what people were drinking, what, what those ancient recipes actually were producing and what could be converted into a modern spirit today. So we really, that's what kind of drove us to this company that made our still, which is in Portugal. This still um, was hand hammered in Portugal by a company that's over 200 years old. And they've been making stills when our recipe that we ultimately ended up making was available. And that is um, a gin recipe or a Geneva or a Jennifer type of spirit. Um, we looked for a product that uh, we could sell. And that's where that bourbon thought kind of start to vanish just because of the economics needed to actually make something, make put it in a barrel, sit it for four or five years, and then wait to monetize that barrel. We needed something we could monetize within a week. So we needed a process that would do that. And so we built a model uh, around that thought of being able to create an, an older, using an older style recipe, um, an older style still, and to create a product that we could actually put out on the market relatively quickly. And that was a gin product. Now, was this something as a recipe that you had been working through? You mentioned people once in we your decide, life. Once we, decided the, once we decided on the, um, the vision, I guess, of the first product, we 
we kind of nailed that down and figured out what the mechanics were to do that. Uh, I mean, believe me, we went through a lot of process of, you know, mapping out fermentation areas, mapping out milling areas, mapping out straining areas, mapping out, you know, stripping still and then a uh, finished still. But it ultimately came down to dollars and cents and what we really realistically what we could do. So we really put together a process in our minds of how to actually produce a gin and how to actually get it out on the market relatively quickly. We looked, we did a lot of research in old um, manuscripts, old Dutch manuscripts, which Google actually has translated all 17th and 18th century manuscripts into English. And we created um, ingredient lists and then created the volumes for those ingredient lists and started on a very small still, started distilling them in our barn. And for about a year, uh, we distilled in our barn in maybe five gallon batches. And we, we distilled this one recipe, the, the genesis of this recipe, we distilled for about 40 or 50 runs. And our, we got our tasting group down to about seven or eight people. Each one of those people, every couple of weeks, would get a little 200 milliliter flask bottle and they would argue about it um, via email. Uh, we had two wine people, registered sommeliers. We had a coffee roaster. Those people could actually speak about flavor constructively, not necessarily I like it or I don't like it, but they could actually kind of dissect what they were tasting. And then we had some English people, some friends, some real what we thought were gin connoisseurs and, and us. And ultimately, we came down and agreed to making what we make today, which is number 27. Uh, we make number 27, and we've been making that since really the day we opened. I had no idea that it was referred to as number 27. Well, I, I mean, you know, I, you know, number 27, right? Right, right, right. Yeah. So we, uh, we make number 27, and mainly because we decided to make it one because it's very good, two, it also had a, a, an ingredient list that we were 100% confident that we could source 12 months a year. So we weren't going to have a problem that way. We, we, we landed with this still here and we erred on a larger capacity. So we make, uh, it's a 800 liter still, which makes roughly between 40 and 56 bottle cases a run. So right now we can make, right now we are making, um, when we're really, I would say at our game, we're making between 40 and 80 cases a week and shipping out. So through that process mm -hmm. of testing with your friends and mm -hmm. those people that you felt mm -hmm. comfortable about giving you sure. the, the the whole feedback of mm -hmm. what you're looking for, mm -hmm. was there was there a really you know was there a worst distillery moment that you've had so far? Was there a, a process of really learning from something that you said? Well, I I have a fine art degree, so I'm very much about trial and error as a way to move forward. So I, I keep three journals. Um, I keep a technical journal. I keep an idea journal and I keep, I call it an angry journal or a frustration journal. So okay. I have three journals. So I journal everything and that really comes out of a fine art kind of background. I don't really see a, um, a failure as failure. I see it actually is just not the result I wanted and I'm going to move on. That actually, that thought actually helped me very much in my previous life of labor negotiations where, you know, some people see places of, you know, of failure as, you know, the end. 
I really just see it as it's just a step to keep right. going. Something to learn from. Right. And just keep move moving forward on. from. So I, I just I just move forward that way. And that that's how I move. That's how I that's how I progress. I don't I make a plan. Generally my plan is um, visual. I generally chart things out, I draw things out in diagram form. And I try to kind of look at those plans and constantly adjust as I move forward. And, you know, that's how I move forward. So as you talk about the plans and as you're constructing everything, how'd you come about the space where you are setting this up through the process there? I spend, I take a lot of time. I I like time. I like to think about things. I take a lot of time. I spent enormous amount of time driving around the city of Philadelphia. I wanted to create a company that actually was Philadelphia engaged. Something that was part of, in my previous life, I did a lot of political action. A lot of, I was very involved in kind of the civic um, activity. And I wanted to create a company that I would be proud of that, you know, wherever I was located, I wanted to be engaged in the community as a business. So we decided that Philadelphia was really where we wanted to be. One, there's a lot of people. Two, there's a lot of people that drink gin. And three, uh, we felt that it would give us the economic base to kind of sustain us. So we, uh, I took a, a map of the city of Philadelphia, a zoning map, and looked at heavy industrial zone sites because I knew that what tripped up most distilleries were zoning issues, mm-hmm. fire code issues, permitting issues. So what I wanted to do is I wanted to eliminate all that. So I only looked at places that were heavy industrially zoned. So I took a zoning map of the city of Philadelphia and I just got in my car and I started driving around. You know, Philadelphia is a great industrial, uh, once a great industrial city and still is a little, you know, I would say a little bit. But it has a tremendous amount of inventory of industrial facility. And so we just drove around from Fishtown to Kensington to Frankfurt to Taconi to, you know, the greater northeast to the Navy Yard to Maniunk. And we ultimately settled on this little building. It's owned by a woman who actually went to the same school I went to, Tyler School of Art. She was very interested in it being a creative space, not a residential space. Uh, it is still zoned heavy industrial. Um, it is uh, a building that's part of an old mill that made fabric um, up into the 70s or 80s. And it was, I didn't have to sign a three-year lease. I could sign a year-to-year lease. I wasn't kind of strapped in. It was not too fearful. Some of the other properties we had to sign three and five year leases. They needed to have a lot of work done on them. One building we found in the Allegheny section, which I totally was fell in love with, but it needed so much work that I decided that I, or I realized I wanted to be in the distilling business, not in the fix up a building business. Okay. Although I still, a friend of mine actually leases that building now and uh, I still covet that building. But the, the point is, is that I tried to put on my business hat and tried to think about how to control all the different aspects. And one of them is just the environment you're in. This building is a one-story masonry structure. It is It conforms to distillation through the zoning code. It didn't need any permitting to actually put a distil- distillery in here. We got a use permit for distillation from the city of Philadelphia to actually use the space for distillation. Um, so it didn't require any modifications or any 
anything other than this temporary wall that we built here. Uh, we built everything in here, but this temporary wall was really a federal um, requirement to create a boundary between taxable liquor and untaxable liquor. But other than that, that's the that's the extent of the modifications of this structure of this space. We installed equipment in here. We bought a still at 800 liters because we were confident that it could still fit through that door. Okay. And um, unfortunately, that door is the largest opening into the space, which fits a pallet in and out of it, but just so it's a four foot opening. Ha, you know, now we're actually getting to the point where we could use bigger openings and we need more space. And so that's a consideration we're thinking about now. But to start, this was the most, it was the least fearful, I guess I'd say. Particularly when I'm writing my own money, my own checks. Right. Mm-hmm. So you go from that barn through the distillation process, testing things out mm-hmm. to this still here. Mm-hmm. And you fire up this still here. Mm-hmm. What was that? What was that feeling like? That, scary. That for, yeah. Scary. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the barn uh, still, which I still have back here, is you know it's a small five gallon still, and we I used a you know a, a grilling kind of a gas a, I guess a gas burner for that I would use outside to like you know boil a lobster. That's what I used to fire up that still. I use a garden hose to run a condenser. You know, it was a very kind of low key kind of. Operation. Almost like what they had in MASH. Yeah, very similar <laughs> to that. Uh, this is actually a 380,000 BTU burner. It's 800 liters of, uh, of a solution that uh, we really take well below a flammable a flashpoint, but it's still 800 liters of boiling liquid. And, you know, when you open a valve on something that's boiling, uh, you start to really think about it a little bit. You know, particularly when it's 800 liters and you realize that, you know, it's dangerous. I mean, it is a dangerous thing. I, I have, I would say, a cursory knowledge of OSHA regulations from the construction industry. So I'm kind of aware, aware of what the dangers can be, what can happen. Um, so yeah, things are, you do think about things, but, you know, we follow very, I, I follow exactly the same process all the time. I try to keep track of it by time and temperature, and I try to replicate what I do every single time and not kind of get too comfortable. I, I when I light up the still every in the morning, I, I I would say I still feel not nervous, but I'm aware. There's a there's a hey, you just yeah. through the process, you're checking the boxes, make sure you do it right. Yeah. And yeah. safety. Right. Safety is, is, is job is, one. Is you want to make sure everybody gets home safe every day. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that that's definitely something. I mean, this is one of the things about looking about a primitive way of distillation. It is an open flame and a copper pot. And it is a very, you know, in a gas or a vapor state, it's a very flammable and explosive thing. So we... Whereas other other distilleries, um, mo- frankly, most other distilleries use a steam jacket to actually heat their solution. Uh, we don't. Uh, a steam jacket is a little safer. Um, it also requires a boiler and piping to it and all that kind of stuff that are, that surrounds that. Um, and that was really just a, a, a cost that we just didn't want to go down. And we didn't think we needed to. Some very good distilleries... And very award-winning, many award-winning products are made 
on this process. And so we felt confident that if we look back in time and back in history and we focused on those processes, one, I could understand it. I didn't have to have, you know, 30 years of a distillation degree to kind of understand, to do it. I didn't need a science background to do it. Um, and I approach it really as an artist and not necessarily from a science background. I believe just by sitting down and talking, mm-hmm. what it does is give the listener, the viewer, an understanding of really what goes into um, the whole opportunity of starting a distillery. Mm-hmm. But from your aspect of, of that creativity and that art and that mm-hmm. desire to do it the way you want to do it by mm-hmm. having control, mm-hmm. but but really touching from the, the history and, mm-hmm. and, and the basic simplicity of how people start to build a mm-hmm. still and then create something of right. a product. And, and in your case, right. what you're creating is more of an art form. Mm-hmm. And in a way, so that, that first time you fire up the still, there's that nervousness, that fear, mm-hmm. that apprehension. Mm-hmm. Um, when, when did you know when you started to taste what was coming off the still? When, when did you know that what you transferred from that barn to this larger production, when did you know you, you had something that was what you exactly wanted? What was that aha moment for you? There have been a lot of aha moments. Okay. Um, one of the most amazing ones was Memorial Day weekend 2015. Uh, we put that little chalkboard sign out on the street. I didn't tell any of my friends. I didn't even tell my family. I just, I told my wife, but I didn't tell my extended family. And I had, I don't know, 24 bottles of what I had made or 40 bottles, something like that. And I put that little sign out on Shur's Lane and where we're sitting now was literally just a saw, two sawhorses and this piece of wood and me in a chair. And we had a square, which we used for our cash register. I didn't tell anybody. And people came in and they tried what we were making. And that day we sold out everything we had. And I put it on Facebook afterwards, but what, what, when people tried what we were making and they were so they were they were excited about two things one that we were making something we were makers in their neighborhood and two we were actually making something that they were proud of that they liked and these weren't people that i that knew anything about me at all they just read a little sign on the street and came in and once i saw that i just i mean it totally amazed me that one, the power of a little sign actually could do how much it could do. We sold out that first weekend. It just told me that at least I was making something that people liked and people liked my story. We have we have customers today that still come in that came in that first weekend. They still have our first bottles that we made, which have like red wax on top of it. So Hopefully those bottles are now empty and they bought other ones. <laughs> Actually, the funny thing is a lot of those people don't, they, they keep those bottles right. and they buy new ones. Right. Um, I, I, it was that, it's that, it, it's that moment when people try, a, try our spirit that we're making and that they look at me in the eye and they, you can see it, that they get it and that it's, it's not something that they've always had before, that it is handcrafted. It's not exactly the same every single time. It actually has a little difference in in its spice or its citrusy notes. But they recognize that it's made by hand and that everything else around them is actually made by a machine. And that what we're making is actually made 
as an art, not necessarily as a solution by a robot that's cranking out exactly the same taste of Johnny Walker Black every single time. Mm-hmm. It's actually something that is different and that it has uniqueness and that people are interested in that. And those people, that's interesting to them. And I guess it was that moment that that told me that hmm, I'm actually doing something that I'm creating something that people like and that there's things that people like. It's a good thing. And I think I can make a living out of this. Now, Maniunk is an artist community, mm-hmm. different varying um, principles of art. Mm-hmm. And I think as an artist, I think one of the things that at least you got to achieve or enjoy mm-hmm. is that immediate sense of gratification to see that yeah. response of people saying, wow. Yeah. One of the most challenging things good. of being an artist is actually... Um, I think most artists don't get that validation very often. Mm-hmm. Um, that's actually one of the most challenging things about being an artist is that, you know, convincing yourself that you're the path you're on is okay. Uh, we're fortunate that we put a little sign out and people come in and they actually put down, you know, $33 and they're happy. Um, and that $33 is a validation of that they're happy. You know, a lot of artists don't get that validation until, you know, maybe, maybe many years later somebody sees what they do. But uh, we chose Maniunk mainly because it was affordable. Um, it was close to where we lived. We, our first house was a Maniunk. So we actually had like a community of people that kind of knew us here. Um, so it was, it, again, it was safe. It was limiting our liability, really. I mean, that was, that was it. I mean, I, I, we like Maniunk. So speaking of art, mm-hmm. who designed your label or uh, your bottle? How this, did that come about? And uh, how did the name come about for, for Liberty Gin? The name comes about really from the thought that, you know, when you're creating a spirit, I, I recognize when I lost my job and when I tried to decide what to do, I recognized one of my assets was... I could actually, if I believed in something, I could talk about it. And if I believed in something, I could promote it or sell it in a very positive and passionate way. And so the thought of I needed a a, a story that I could kind of knit together of why we're here, why we're actually uh, drinking this spirit and what makes this spirit different than others. And so what we did was we 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 went back in time, we bought it, we we had a still manufactured for us that was in, from a pattern that was over 200 years old. And we have a recipe that also comes from texts that are over 200 years old. And so one of the great things about being in Philadelphia is what happened here over 200 years ago. And that was the modern world actually changed. The Declaration of Independence, uh, the revolution separating from England, and people convened in this city and they actually changed the course of modern history. That's a very powerful thought. One, and, and frankly, it's a, it's, it's a story that in my mind doesn't necessarily get told very well. I think Philadelphians, we kind of take it for granted that it, that happened here. It's not that big a deal. Although when you stand around the Liberty Bell or stand around Independence Hall and you see people that come from all over the world to look at this, that's very powerful. That's a very powerful story and a very powerful thought. And so I thought that 
I needed to kind of tie into that because I'm frankly a little guy making gin in the middle of nowhere. I need to attach myself. I need to create or I need to build around a story. And so one of the great gifts that happened in Philadelphia in that summer of 1776 was people stood in a city. They convened here and they basically read a document that said, we're not taking this anymore. We're going to we're going to chart our own course. We're going to have our own destiny. We're going to. And one of the, the tenets of that was freedom and liberty. And then I thought, you know, the interesting thing about liberty is that it's actually it actually is a thought. It's actually a, literally a spirit like people yearn for that spirit of liberty around the world. And, you know, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to, you know, when you say that, you think, well, gin is a spirit, liberty is a spirit. I can work with that together. And then you go to the Trademark Commission and you kind of start Googling and you start looking up and you find out that, uh, huh, there is no liberty gin. I think I need to be liberty gin. That works for you. That works for me. And so that's how that, that's how that comes about. We hired a guy and we, so we hired a guy to actually do our label through some friends of ours, a designer. And the guy did the label. He was working on this label and I hated what he did. I was, I hated what he did. And, and frankly, in the back, I had a whole wall of imagery and just basically a giant wall of what I wanted to go into this label. And this designer, who was a local guy in New Jersey, I brought him in and I we I worked with him and worked with him and, and tried to kind of bend him to get what I wanted out of him. And one night, about two o'clock in the morning, I'm laying in bed and I'm very frustrated. And knowing that I have to, I have to submit a label to actually, to the, to the federal government to get it approved, to actually get it onto a bottle so I could actually sell a bottle and that... You know, when you're out of a job and you're, you know, all your friends are looking at you and you've decided to start a distillery and you're already, most of your friends think that you're out of your mind and you have a fine art degree and you're going to roll out your first product and it's going to be something that you don't like. I just decided that I have to make, I, I, I can't go down this path. I have to get rid of this guy. I, I don't like this label. I'm not happy with it. Um, and if it's going to have my name on it, I got to have something that I'm proud of. So we got rid of him. We, we paid him off, took all the artwork, it's in the back. And um, there was a guy that I've been following on Instagram that had done some work that I quite liked, but he was ridiculously expensive and I couldn't afford it. And so I called him up and he did something that I, I, I remember to this day, which I think is brilliant, is that he decided I wanted to work. I wanted him to work for us. And he completely flipped it and said, I'm going to send you a questionnaire. You're going to answer these questions. I'm going to read the question. I'm going to read the answers. And next week I'm going to call you. I'm going to interview you. And then I'm going to call you back and decide whether I'm going to work for you. So he totally flipped it, which made me only want him more. It only... It, it, so whatever the price was, he was my guy because I knew from what he had done in the past, I knew that I could get out of him what I really wanted. And his name is Chad Michael. He had done the Kraken Rum label. He had done uh, Two James up in Detroit. Um, and I've he, been to that distillery. That's right. a great It's a distillery. great distillery. So he's yeah. done a lot of kind of high-end label uh, craft distilled products. And so 
I just decided that this was the guy and you know, we got him, uh, we came to an agreement. Um, I found the money and he started on the process of a label. In the meantime, I also knew that I had product. And I needed to put labels on it. I needed to sell it. I started, need to start selling it. So I literally created a word document of Palmer's Liberty Gin and sent it to the TTB, got that label approved. I put that on labels and I sold them out this door to get started. And also I met with the, um, the PLCB in Pennsylvania and I got them to give me five or six stores and I started getting bottles in those stores as well. And those were the, what we call the red wax bottles. So they're, they're another bottle, a little shorter, stouter, 750 milliliters, but it's a clear label and finished with a red wax dip. Um, and people like it. In fact, we still make some people still um, sometimes come in and ask for a red wax bottle. But so that label lasted us for about six to seven, eight months until Chad Michael could get this label kind of up and running. Uh, then we submitted that and got approval and started printing out the labels. It's it's incredible how much thought because that's that's that that first impression, right? Mm-hmm. It's not what's in the bottle; mm-hmm. it's the label outside, and how much thought that goes right. into the idea that mm-hmm. if your label may not be appealing or interesting right. or captivating, right. right? Will they bypass it for something else on the shelf? Right. You need something that actually. I mean, I I don't know what the figures are, but I would guess that the. Uh, there's a large percentage of sales that just come from labels. I'm sure people buy what they like. So what we did was, and what I needed to convince or, or convince a guy from Texas, I needed him to create, which is where Chad Michael is, is that I needed him to create something that felt very Philadelphian because I wanted to attach myself rather than me kind of try to create and convince you of who I am from zero. I needed to attach myself to something that you already knew. Something that you already were familiar with or had something in your mind, you have some perspective of it in your mind. And that goes back to that story. So if I could, you know, I've, 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 I have a recipe and I have equipment based on that time of the American Revolution. So I need to kind of like kind of touch that story. I need to kind of get that into an artifact. And so in the in 1700s, 1776, Something fantastic happened in this city. In the 1800s, Philadelphia really became an industrial powerhouse. 1900s, that continued on all the way, frankly, up to the Vietnam War. And so I needed something to kind of attach into that story. So I wanted something that felt very 19th century kind of Philadelphia artifact. Something that you as a Philadelphian would feel comfortable with. So that's where this label really comes from. This that's where this comes from. Um, you know, the, this label speaks Philadelphia. Some people think that Philadelphia is not really the greatest thing to put on a bottle. Frankly, in my mind, a lot of great things happened in Philadelphia, and we wanted to make something that was known as a Philadelphia gin. The interesting thing is, we're kind of on the backside of um, what I what blue coat, and blue coat is made in Philadelphia, and. Blue Coat, in my mind, is a very, it's an old name, but it actually is a very modern gin. This is actually an older name, but actually is a more historical gin. So it's a look back. Blue Coat is a good gin that looks forward of what you can do with gin. This is a look back at what 
could have been in Philadelphia during the time of the American Revolution. So Hamilton, Jefferson, Adams, Washington could have drank this flavor coming off of a Dutch spice ship sitting in Delaware River. And that, to me, is a very powerful story. We can tell that story. This label tries to tell that story and I think does fairly successfully. It was not my idea to put my face on this bottle. Uh, That was actually the designer's idea. Um, I think it lends to the bottle. People like it. I do. People do. Yeah. People do like it. I, I have to say, it's a, it was a little uncomfortable. Now I've kind of gotten used to it, but um, in the beginning, it was I would say fairly uncomfortable. What do people say when they recognize that you're on the bottle? Um, what kind of replies do you get? <laughs> well, other than uh, that, Stalin on the bottle, which is very odd. Oh, okay. That, that, that it's liberty <laughs> and Stalin, but uh, but. Uh, they, they're usually surprised. Um, we were just at the flower show just the other week, and uh, people ask who's on the bottle, and I'll say, oh, that's me on the bottle. And they their initial reaction is, no, it's not. And I'm like, it is me. That That's me. Uh, you know, I make it. I stand behind it, and my face and name are on the bottle. And if you don't like it, um, I'll give you your money back. I mean, it's, you know, it's unconditional. Like, I put everything into it. My my net worth is in this company. Everything is in this company. I'm all in. As my father would say, we burn the boats. We're not going back. This is what we're doing. My face is on the bottle. You know, that's it. And I would say that's, you know, when you look back at the history and we mm-hmm. talk about, you know, the revolution, mm-hmm. that, that's a concept. Right. Of, so you're all in. Right. You're, you're all in. Yeah. And, and you stand behind your you, word that's and right. your product and that's you put right. your name on it and you put your face on it and say, right. this is me. Right. This is it's elegantly simple. Yeah. And there's really no question. If you don't like it, there's other gins. I'll give you your money back. Move, you know, that's fine. I'm, I'm not offended. This is what I'm doing. And that became very much kind of a marching orders of when you lose your job, you can't find a job. You know, I, I, in one book, you know, there's millions of books about reading, about you, that you read when you're looking for a job or what to do and all this kind of thing. And in one, one paragraph I was reading in, in some book some guy wrote, and he basically said, if you can't find a job, make a job. That's what this is. This is... Nobody wanted to hire me. I was 55 years old. I had a nice six-figure salary. I had a secretary, a company car, a nice platinum card, and I had a really nice life. But it was over. It was done. I needed to chart my own path. A lot of people think this path is crazy. A lot of people think this is, you know, what in the world is he doing? What does he know about this? You and I have talked a couple of times. Mm -hmm. I think you really love this path. I love this path because, because I wanted to create something that had no limit to where I could go. I wanted to create something that I could be, I, I could be a hundred percent, a hundred and ten percent proud of and not, there'd be no limit. So it's all up. If it doesn't sell, it doesn't sell, but it's all on me. But if it does sell, there's no limit to where it can go. Absolutely. And one of the things I felt in my old job, I always felt this, is that I felt it was very limiting. It was actually, I I always felt that people didn't get, people didn't see the potential of what they were, what they were doing. They were too, they were, they were too in the weeds. They never could get, put their heads up and look and see how far they could go. And with this, although I recognize there are tremendous challenges with how far you can go, the horizon is, 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 is the destiny. So you can go anywhere. Yeah, I mean, there are people drinking our gin in, you know, Norway. There are that's, people drinking our gin be so, in Australia. When you see that or right. you hear about that, right. that's, that's got to be incredible. Yeah. I mean, and to me, 
If it ended tomorrow, I've already done it. Right. So now my job is is to make it broader, beefier, um, stronger, more secure. You know, it's it's this isn't an easy path. I'm not going to say that. And we're fortunate that we're, you know, we're old enough that we have, you know, kind of some financial stability to kind of pursue this endeavor. You know, we don't have a kid in college. We don't have, you know, a mortgage payment and th- we drive used cars and things like that. But the point is, is that the quality of life, I mean, I just spent, you know, 12 days at a flower show meeting, you know, I gave, I gave away, I don't know, I think we went through 1500 tastings cups. Right. I met 1500 people that I've never met before. And, and how many of those people, when you meet them say, well, I didn't know you were here. A lot. I didn't. A lot. Almost look all. Look at all the. All, look, all, yeah. Almost all of them. Yeah. I, almost all of them. And I'm not going to say every single person is like a gin person. Mm-hmm. But when you make that connection with somebody that actually is interested in what you're doing, is actually interested in what you're doing in Philadelphia, what you're, and that they have access to get this product, it's it's wonderful affirmation of what you're doing. And frankly, I put my head on the pillow every night and I, I thank God that I've met those people and it's a privilege to meet those people. And it's, it's actually a, it's a great blessing. It's, it, it really is. And I, I truly mean that in the sense that if it stopped tonight, I, you would read my, you know, 30 year resume and frankly, my greatest accomplishment would be he's a master distiller. He makes gin. And it's award-winning, three international medals, and it's damn good gin. And, you know, I mean, I, I've done a lot of other things in my life. That's the thing I'm, frankly, you know, that I've done, other than my family, that I'm most proud of. So there's another bottle behind there, mm-hmm. though. What yeah. else, sir? Uh- this is actually a pa- This is a little bit more of a passion project. We don't... Uh, we only sell this here at the distillery. Um, this product is for sale in five states right now and all across Pennsylvania, and we're shipping out. Uh, it's our it's our main commercial product. We and are a gin bottles, distillery. Your mani- your this is Maniac Moonshine. moonshine. Yeah. This is something that we created because I did want I didn't want to lose that thought of of making a whiskey, of making something that was all about the land and its localness and its terroir of of what that season was doing that year. Um, so this is a corn whiskey um, that's based on a recipe that comes out of George Washington's distillery. It's ba- it's just corn and barley. Uh, it's all from Bucks County and it's distilled right here. It's very labor intensive to make it. Um, we fermented in in the fashion that George Washington's distillery ferments in that. And was, how would that be? We ferment in... Rather than cook things in a large, what's called a, ma- a mash tun or a large cooker, and then letting it ferment, what we do is we use the still as a boiler. So we load the still up with water. We bring that water to a boil. And then we take 60-gallon um, open-top barrels, and we fill them with corn. And then we load that boiling water into those barrels. And that wood holds that heat and cooks the corn. And as it cooks the corn, it releases the starch. When it gets to a certain temperature, we add barley. And as it gets to another temperature, then we add yeast and then we let it ferment in those barrels. Letting it ferment in those barrels gives it that 
it gives it a more authentic kind of flavor. And then we strain all that corn out and then we put it back in the still and we run it through the still twice. And then that gives us this corn whiskey. It is, it's basically a bourbon without the age. Aging. Yeah. 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 It's good. So if somebody would have asked you, even your wife at this point, 10 years ago, do you ever see in any time and place you being a master distiller? Would that have even come up in the conversation? No, never. Not at all. I always like to... I mean, one of the things when I looked, thought about doing this is I, you look at your assets. And one of the things that I knew that I could do is that if I... I like to cook. I like to make things. And I like to talk about what I make. And I think I can tell a pretty good story about people making things and kind of relate them to people. And that's, that's what I did. Being like a... A distiller is just kind of a blessing. I mean, I don't, I mean, that's something that I never would imagine that I actually ever would have been. That was not my career path. You know, I never thought that. So what's the future hold for Palmer? What's that look like now that you didn't expect to see yourself here? Where do you think you'd like to be a a year or two or three or 10 years down the road? I want to be strong. I want to get. I, I want our Liberty Gin to be strong in the Mid Atlantic region. I want to be. I want a product that is kind of anchored in the Mid Atlantic, from Washington D.C. to really Manhattan. I want something that uh, when people consider gin, that they consider a good Philadelphia gin that's handmade and handcrafted. I do want to broaden. I want to broaden the gin. Uh, or the spirit, I want to go beyond. What interests me about spirits is not, I, I mean, what's in the bottle actually very much interests me. But the most powerful part about it is actually what the spirit enables you to do. And that is the actually engagement with other people and the, the, the ability to kind of sit with people and talk and learn and enjoy yourselves. And it's that moment that that spirit kind of brings you together that I think is, is very powerful. So what I see and what I'd like to focus on or, or what I'd like to continue to expand upon is kind of the lifestyle brand that kind of surrounds all that. So something that's broader, not necessarily about spirits, but about other objects and other things that's kind of more of a lifestyle of what spirits can actually do for you as opposed to, hey, I'm going to make a, a rum or I'm going to make a bourbon or I'm going to make you know a vodka or something like that. Those things are in my mind. Those things are things that I'm interested in. But I'm very interested in kind of going broader and not necessarily broader in I want to make everything on a bar. I want to assemble a collection of things that are of the same quality and kind of kind of aesthetic thought that this is not necessarily I'm going to make a rye whiskey I'm going to make a bourbon I'm going to make a blended scotch I'm going to make you know I'm not going to make all those things I want things that are about lifestyle I want things that are about experience I want things that are about that moment that when you sit down around a fire and you light a cigar and you're with your best friend and you want to talk about something, I want to be about that moment. And I want everything, I want to think about everything around that moment. 
That's that's what I see, and that's that's a different vision than most distillers, I, I think, and that's that's okay. I mean, I'm not saying that they're wrong. I'm just saying that's what. No, I that's want. your vision. That's and, what I. Want. And I think that where you are as a steward for the craft distilling industry, mm-hmm. everybody has their own different vision. Yeah, yeah. And right. and and but you're a steward for mm-hmm. the, the 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 where the the industry is going to go to, or as it's going to move and grow. Right. From I, I don't. I you're don't, still a young industry. Yeah, we're very young. It, it's an I. I it, at the flower show, I, I spent a lot of time talking to uh, Stephen Beam, who's like the great grandson of Jim Beam. He came over to me, and I, I, I tasted some of his new whiskey, this Yellowstone bourbon, which is very good. And uh, the next day, and I was over talking to him. We were both signing bottles, actually, down there. And he came over to me the second day, and he said to me, he says, you know, you and I are the only two guys here that are actually making anything. And it kind of like struck me and I thought, here's like Jim Beam, the great grandson of like, or Stephen Beam, the great grandson of Jim Beam, like kind of equating his to me. And I'm like a little guy in Maniunk. <laughs> it just, it just was bizarre to me. But there's a fraternity. Of right. I, and that actually yeah. was really very right. powerful. But the, the, we ended up actually having a lot of like discussion and actually we've been emailing back and forth and, and. You know, one of the things we talked about is what the future is. I mean, their fam- their story is they basically sold most of their inventory and product and kind of everything off. And they're starting a new distillery, uh, Limestone Branch Distilling in Kentucky. You know, the, the thought of what's next for this industry, where's it all going to go? How does it all wrap up? Where does, you know, how does it kind of knit together? And there's a lot of different thought about it. I mean, his thought is, is that there, you know, there's going to be regional brands there, you know, that the evolution of these regional brands and destination distilling distilleries are actually, you know, things that are, is where we are moving or where we're going to. So I, I don't, you know, I, I don't pretend to know where I think it's going. I know, or I, I guess I pretend to know where I think I want to go. Okay. Um, but I don't. I mean, my vision for what's next here is quite different than, say, Dad's Hat or Bluebird Distilling or Row House or Blue Coat. I mean, they're they're different, and and I'm not saying that they're wrong at all. I'm just saying that that's not necessarily that's not what I have in my mind. That's what makes this perfect. Mm-hmm. Everybody can take yeah. a still, right? Absolutely. And a bottle mm-hmm. and go wherever they want to yeah. it. But in its simplest form, it's still about putting a sign at the end of the street. Yeah. And introducing to mm-hmm. people a gin mm-hmm. and a product and a story yeah. that they've never heard before, mm-hmm. that they've never had before. Right. And they've, based on other experiences, stop and say, I, I don't like that right. until they have what you've produced. Right. And they say, wow, I didn't know it could taste this good. Right. I didn't know what the flavors would be. Yeah. And then you learn the romance and the story and the history and everything mm-hmm. else. And I think that's what you bring to that. Yeah. I and mean, I think, I, I think I'm effective in my sense is I'm effective in figuring out what people, there are three stories that people want to hear. I think it's three. <laughs> One is this, the history. Right. One is the history. Um, they're interested in, in an 18th century recipe and an 18th century process. You know, and they're one click away from wearing three pointed hats and, you know, gold buckle shoes. 
and they the revolutionists and the reenactors and they're, they're, but they're interested in the history of it. And we do provide a spirit that is anchored in history. There are other people that want to hear about, um, you know, a rising from the ashes story. I mean, they want to hear about somebody that was basically fired a big legal battle, roadkill, and reinvents himself in a totally different direction. That kind of hero's tale. They want that story. And then there's that other story of, uh, you know, a distiller, like somebody who's like creating a product and putting it in a bottle. And I generally can figure out when people come through that door within one or two sentences what they want to hear, what, what they what they want. And frankly, all three of those stories are true. All three of those stories. I, I don't have to worry because all three they're of those stories, stories, they're my stories. Yeah. And, and, and I can I feel I can listen to those stories and I can determine what they want. And frankly, my grandfather, who was a shoe salesman, he was a very large shoe salesman up and down the East Coast. He sold shoes to the Pentagon for two wars. He he was a very successful shoe salesman. He also liked to drink, but his favorite thing to drink was water, actually. And but he would he would always go out to a tree out in uh, uh, in Fairmount Park because he was from West Philly, and he would go out to a tree and he would get he would take water with him. He'd sit under a tree when he'd had enough of all his customers and everything. He'd sit under the tree and he'd just like look back at the city, and he really enjoyed that. But he always I always asked him what made him so successful in selling. What how did what 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 did what was the difference? between him and the other guy. What was that what was that moment? How did he know? And he said selling is really easy. And he and he just said you find out what they want and you give it to them. Mm-hmm. You know that that's exactly what this is. I mean that that that's exact that's that's about the story. Because people want to be engaged in a story. They want to they, they this is not a product you just buy off the shelf and you don't think about. This is a product you buy and you actually think about it. You actually think about it. And then when you go, you share it. Usually people drink with other people. So when they're drinking something with other people, they're generally going to talk about it. And if they neither, they meet the maker, they know the story of it. They know where it's made. They know something about it. They're, they've become a salesperson for us. They become an advocate. And we've given them that because we've empowered them to now, now they know about Jen. Now they know about history. Now they know about making things. And that's a powerful thought. And they know your story. And they know our story. They yeah. know where we are. They know what we're doing. I mean, we have one girl. I always remember one day. I came here one day. It was a Saturday. I drive up, and there's this attractive woman standing at the door. And she had been in here a couple times before. And I said, I, and I was early. It was like 1130. We opened at 12. And I said, boy, I just joked. I said, but you really must like our gin. And she goes, actually, no. I, I don't really like your gin at all. I don't like gin. I don't drink gin at all. I said, well, you've been here like three weeks in a row. She says, I go to a lot of functions and parties and I live around the corner. This is made in my neighborhood and I bring this as a gift and people really like it. I'm like, well, that's like, that's even better than you liking gin. (laughs) That's actually better. So it's that power that is amazing to me and that I, I thank myself. I thank God every week when I see those people. I thank people all the time about their their passion for what we're doing well 
we, we, we've had some nice time. We have a, I, I really enjoyed our time together. Mm-hmm. This is something sure. I've wanted to do for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, from I the first it. opportunity I met you, mm-hmm. and as you said, walking through the four-foot opening mm-hmm. door. Uh, is there anything that we didn't talk about today that, that you want to share, that some, some things that maybe rattled around your mind or some thoughts that you might have? No, other than the sense that I think that there's a lot of, a, there, there's a lot of energy right now in the craft spirit, spirit world. And that we're all makers and we're all people making different products. And that I would encourage everybody to try as much of things that are made by people rather than things that are made by machines. Mm -hmm. And that it's an exciting time. And I think people should be enthusiastic about trying everything as much as they can. And kind of putting that aside of I don't drink rum or I don't drink whiskey or I don't drink scotch or I don't drink and just experiment and try because the flavors and the the taste and what's happening in this community are so exciting and frankly a lot of them are not good a lot of them are you know people learning Mm -hmm. and for us to all be supportive of each other we have to we have to financially support all those people and we have to try them so we we need to kind of encourage people and I think everybody should really um, try everything that's out there and put their old kind of thoughts aside of what I don't drink and what I do drink. Put that aside and be more than just I'm a vodka drinker or I'm a, I only drink whiskey or I only drink uh, wine. And just try as many things as possible and meet as many people as possible because they're actually really interesting people. And so I think that would be my my advice to everybody is try as much as you can. Look and taste and go to as many places as you can because they're all interesting stories and they all have great value. Uh, this is just mine, my story, but there's a lot of other stories out there that people that are exciting, that are, are interesting and I think make us all deeper people. So for people that are now hearing your story mm-hmm. that have not been to the distillery, mm-hmm. how do people find you? They can find us online uh, under palmerdistilling.com, Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and all that stuff. Um, they can find us in the premium stores in the Pennsylvania Liquor Control Board, the PLCV stores in throughout Pennsylvania. We are now starting to ship to New York and back into New Jersey, Delaware and Maryland. Um, you can email me at walter at palmerdistilling.com and... My phone number's basically on the website, and it rings my phone 24 hours a day. <laughs> and tastings and the address? Tastings are at 376 Shures Lane, right in Maniunk. Tastings are 12 to 6 on Saturdays. Um, we have free tastings. We do make some gin cocktails. Uh, we do sell some Pennsylvania wine and some Pennsylvania beer as well from other makers that we have good relationships with. Uh, sometimes we do have a Friday night here with some music and some art openings. We want this space to be about the intersection of art and science and what alchemy is all about and that intersection of, of people and creativity. Uh, so we do have some uh, artwork on the walls from local artists. And, um, you know, we try to be that intersection of a place where people um, in a non-threatening manner can actually experiment and kind of sense about, you know, what alchemy and spirits are all about. Walter, I'm, I'm grateful. And I appreciate your time today is sitting down with me and Fermented Adventure, the podcast. Sure. Like I said, the, the day that uh, walked in this door, I mean, 
tasting your gin, tasting your product, getting a chance to meet you mm-hmm. and your wife and mm-hmm. hearing your story. This has just been a great experience and I appreciate your time. Today. I appreciate your support. Thank it's you. Good to see you. I appreciate that. All right. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Thank you.